Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, when we learn these ideas together, there's uh, sometimes sometimes we, we we think, okay, well, I'm gonna learn some religion right now. <laughs> like, I am not sure what religion is, honestly. I, I, you know, I, I think it's a silly word. I, I don't get it. Are, are you religious? I don't, I don't get that. I don't think Judaism believes in religion, actually. Um, what do I mean by that? Um, we, we think this is real. This is reality. And, and we are saying that this is a description of the world that we live in. This is actually what's going on. At least to my modern sort of like secularly trained mind, the word religion sounds like something like extra credit. You know what I mean? Or some, some kind of bonus or weirdo philosophy on top of being normal, right? But religion is actually not what we're proposing when we talk about Torah. When we talk about Torah, we're saying, okay, here's the world that we live in and here's all the dynamics. Some of them you can see, some of them you can't see. Some of them you can see. Don't, don't kill another guy. Don't steal from another person. Don't say nasty things to another person. You can see the effects of that. Some of this stuff you can't see. It's more metaphysical. And the Torah is explaining the seen and the unseen. And they're saying, here it is. Rabbi Green once said to me something like, that's always stayed with me. He said, he said, I do this stuff. I do these mitzvot because they're true. And if the Torah said, go to the bowling alley and bowl all day, I would bowl all day because that's clearly what I'm supposed to do. Okay. Happily, the Torah doesn't say that. But, but anyway, it's, 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 it's a sort of like a reality check on what it is that we're doing and, and learning about and everything like that. So, so when we learn these ideas, we say Torah emet. We say the, 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 it's the truth of the Torah, the truth of the world. And so, so these are things where it's sort of like, you see, theoretically, according to, to Newton, right? If I were to roll a ball on the ground, right? It really, it should roll forever. Why doesn't it roll forever? And the answer is because of friction. Friction eventually stops the rolling of the ball, okay? But what if I had a frictionless environment, okay? So that I roll the ball and it just keeps on rolling forever because it's a frictionless environment. That's what we say is happening with the mitzvah. That basically there's this this metaphysics of the world where when I do a mitzvah that is completely in harmony with the creation of the world so there's no friction going on so that's why a mitzvah or a prayer or like a good thought or whatever it is that's why these things last forever because they're totally just gliding along throughout all the different levels of creation and everything like that in a frictionless environment Right? We're talking spiritually right now, but just, just a way of understanding the eternality of all the good things that we do. Now that applies also to ideas. Like an idea like is also frictionless. It won't stop. It won't go away if it's really true. Ultimately, and if it's what we say, L'shem Shemayim, if it's for the sake of heaven. right? If it's not sort of some ulterior motive. See, because things get mixed up a lot of times. Because a lot of times people promote themselves as spiritual leaders and religious leaders, but it's really all about them. 
They make it about them and it's about their ego and it's about their glorification and everything like that. In which case the Talmud actually refers to the Torah in those circumstances as a tzamavis, as a, as a, as a poison. That the Torah can actually be turned into poison if it's used for ulterior motives. So, so there are, but the good news is we say shalolishmo bolishmo, which means that if someone starts out with ulterior motives, like I'll give you an example. I had a friend, and he's like, wonderful guy, wonderful guy, and and uh, and he's sort of like a real kind of go-getter, kind of ambitious type of guy, right? And he learned in a class when he was first starting to learn some Torah that Moshe was the most humble person in the world, and yet Moshe became the greatest person in the world. So he was interested in becoming the greatest person in the world, so he decided, oh, I know how to become the greatest person in the world. I'll become the most humble person in the world. So, so here, here, here you have something like everything gets kind of muddy, you know? He really just wants to be great, but he says, okay, but if I'm humble, I can become great. Right? So, so it sounds like, ah, that's a classic case of a tzam maves. That's, that's using the potion, the, the Torah as a potion of death, right? But we've got this other principle, which you have to put alongside of it, which is that if you do something not for the sake of heaven, but you keep on doing it, ultimately the Torah itself is so purifying that it will kind of get into your bones and into your brain and everything like that, and you'll start doing it now for the sake of heaven. Right? So that's, that dynamic is also in place. Okay. So, so these ideas that we learn are world transforming because what do we say? We say that, that, that in the Garden of Eden, like the, the, the classic mass understanding of the whole Garden of Eden um, encounter is that the world was great and then we messed it up. Right? The world was already perfect and then we come along and blow it. And now we're trying to get it back to where it was. I, that is not my understanding. That is not my understanding. Because as Reb Shlomo put it so beautifully one time, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? In other words, there's still, there was still needed something for human beings to do in order to elevate creation on some level. And then that's when Shabbos was going to happen. Shabbos was going to be our, coincide with our elevation of whatever we needed to do, which in this case was to work and to guard the garden, which was all 613 mitzvahs in two, right? Work and guard the garden were the lotases and the ases, the thou shalt nots and the, and you should do these, right? The both categories of Torah were all kind of, however we're able to understand it, sort of metaphysically, you know, um, uh, contained within these directions. And human beings still had to do something, and then that would have been the perfection of the world. Okay. So now, when we talk about the work that we need to do, when we talk about these ideas, which are revolutionary and world-transforming, we're talking about the, the idea of finishing this final chapter of evolution of creation and of humanity. Right? And, and we're going to do it with these ideas of the Torah. All right, with that in mind, let me give you just an example. And there's so many things that we take for granted. You know, I'll give you one example of something that I've always taken for granted. We say one of the biggest prayers in all of Judaism 
is, um, and you can only say this with a minion, right? In, in, in certain circumstances. We say, Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzfakot, Molokal Aretz Kivodo. Holy, 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 that's the way it's translated, is, is, is Hashem. His, his glory fills the entire world. So, I don't know how many times I've said that. Th- literally thousands of times. All of a sudden, Shabbos, it hits me. Something brand new about it, right? For me, anyway. Which is, you know, there's certain parts of the Siddur, of the prayer book, that were written by the Anshe Knesset Hagadola. That was like um, the last sort of assembly of sages that contained prophets also, okay? And they sort of like um, wrote the Shemona Esrei, the, 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 the standing prayer, the Amida, and, and kind of put the, the prayer book into, into place, okay? So there's certain, there's certain prayers that were written by the rabbis and prophets. But if you look at a sitter, especially like an art scroll sitter, which is very annotated and there are tons of footnotes all over it, you'll see that all the prayers also have verses from the Torah and Tanakh all over and from the Talmud all over, right? So some are written by the rabbis. A lot of them are you're just quoting verses from from the Torah, okay? So with that in mind, it hit me, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. I always thought, Kadosh, 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 that, and I never really thought about it. My impression was that's something that was actually written by the rabbis. It's just sort of like part of the writing of the prayer book. But then it hit me, wait a second, no, that's actually, that's, that's a verse from the Torah. That's from the prophet Yeshaya, from Isaiah. And then it hit me, here's the thought, is there any other place in the entire Torah where the same word is where the same word is used three times in a row? Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. I, I don't know. I, I asked someone who knows the entire Talmud by heart, literally, literally. I asked him that yesterday, and he was like, and he told me he's never. I have, I've asked him many questions, and he always he's like a beautiful guy. He always pretends that he doesn't know the answer because he's he hides how much he knows. You know, there are certain permissible places where you, you, you have license not to say the full truth. Okay? One of them is how much Torah you know. Right? You're, you're not supposed... So the famous, the classic story, I forgot the name of the Rebbe, is someone came up to him and said, I, I, I heard that you know the entire Talmud. Is that true? And he says, no, I only know half. And they, they said, which half? He says, whichever half. <laughs> so 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 he always like whenever I ask him a question I say like where is that in the Talmud you know like I'm thinking about something so I walk up to him where's that he'll go oh I, I, I don't know I don't know I don't know I, I, I don't know I don't you know you might want to look and <laughs> and it's like <laughs> And sometimes he'll even let me walk out of the door and then he'll run up to me halfway in the street and go, oh, you know, I think I just... It's very beautiful to watch. It's beautiful to watch. It's not a game. It's not a game. It's, it, it's, 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 it's as you really grow, you have to understand that you, you also have to grow in humility. And sometimes humility means hiding something. Like, it's like... It's a form of sneeskite. Don't think that sneeskite doesn't just mean not wearing a bikini to show. Like, that's like a very small aspect of being sneez. Being sneez is for men and it's for women and it's for as much about how you conduct yourself in terms of your personality 
as it is in terms of the clothes that you wear, right? So sniut, as we say, is, 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 is a very critical mita, right? Beyond how you dress. Um, so anyway, so these, these ideas, right? The ideas of the Torah. So, so uh, and the radicalness of them. So, I'll give you an example. There's certain things, like I was saying, that we take for granted. Like we say, kadosh, 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 but that's a verse. Is there any other place? So he asked me, the person who knows the whole Talmud by heart, said to me, look it up. And he didn't run back to me. That, that was the final answer. I don't know if there's any other place in the entire Tanakh where the same word is repeated three times in a row. He told me to look it up on a computer. <laughs> it's never happened in terms of my exchanges with him, which tells me it's probably the only time in the entire Torah where it's, where it's listed three times. It's just my guess. Anyway, that's the type of thing that you take for granted. That's an oddity. The same word said three times in a row in a verse in the Torah, that's an oddity. But there are so many things that we familiarize ourselves with and we take them for granted. You know, by the way, therapy, psychotherapy is great for this reason because there's certain things about your life that you absolutely think, oh, that's totally normal. Your dad, like, you know, like taking a shower and like the kitchen sink is normal. Well, it was normal for me. I, I grew up with that. Oh, you're right. That's kind of weird. Yeah, it's kind of weird. And then you go, oh, okay. You know, and you start to look at your life a little bit differently. You go, you know what, maybe... Maybe I'm like this for some understandable reasons, you know? But a lot of times you only get those type of insights in therapy because if everything is, they're just things that you, you would never second guess about your life or about anything because they're just totally ingrained in normal to you. Um, but when we appreciate how radical they are, and so let's get to this radical idea that I, I, I want to mention in terms of Judaism, in terms of Torah, um, so, so I, so the Alexander the Great is conquering the entire world. There's only a few people who have done that in 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 human history. Alexander the Great basically conquered the entire world, the known world. Very unusual, very very unusual, and um, and he gets to Jerusalem. Right? And he's just winning everything, you know? He gets to Jerusalem, and the high priest, the Kohen Gadol of the Jewish people, the high priest, right, comes out of the Beis Hamikdash to greet him. Right? And Alexander the Great, you can imagine, if you are conquering the whole world, you've got like a pretty nice ride, right? Like whatever you're, whatever, whatever, whatever's taking you around is going to look pretty good. <laughs> So he had this white horse, which was like a giant white horse. And I'm not talking like giant, like in a medrash, like, oh, it was the size of 50 horses. Like, I'm not talking like as a medrash. I'm just talking about normal horses. This is a big white horse, like about as big as you can find in like the ancient world. Like the best looking horse. He had it, you know? So, and it makes sense. It makes sense. He's Alexander the Great. Of course, he's going to have the best looking horse there is, right? So it was this, like this big white horse, he gets, he sees the coin guddle, right? He gets off the horse. This is a, a recorded historical event, okay? He gets off the horse and he bows down to the Kohen guddle. And like his people are like, you know, what's going on? They've never seen anything like this because 
you had two choices. You had two choices when Alexander the Great, and by the way, most armies throughout history, came to your town, which was surrender or fight. That was it. That was on the menu. You know what I mean? There were no avocado egg rolls. It was like, surrender or fight. That was it, you know? So, <laughs> so the Kain Gadol offers him a third option. You ready for this third option? And this is like, I have the chills just thinking about it. Because again, you have to understand the radicalness of this thought. He says, how about peace? Peace? What's peace? What's peace? We either wipe you out or you try your best to wipe us out. <coughs> peace? And Alexander the Great says, yes. He says, yes to peace with the Jewish people. This is enormous. This is incredible. This is incredible. And his people say to him, why are you doing this? Like, why are you treating him with this level of honor and like all the rest? And he says, this is recorded in the Talmud. Every night before I go into battle, I've dreamt that there's been an old man that's come to me, that's blessed me, that I'm going to be victorious. And now I, it, it's him. It was the, the Koen Gadol was coming to him in his dreams. And when he saw him, he was like, you know, yeah, whatever it is, yeah. You know, and just honored him as, as greatly as he could. But here you see how something which is like something like we talk about peace. And it's like, of course, peace, peace, let's have peace. Like, can we just have peace? Like, it's sort of like a normal, obvious option. This is not normal, and it's not obvious. Shalom is like, this is like an exalted, radical idea, right? And by the way, the Torah that brings us this concept of peace also says there are certain times that you have to go to war. You know? Like, there are bumper stickers that, that used to crop up you know, around the time a few years ago when we were especially like full on in Iraq and things like that. And it said, war is never the answer. So that means that Hitler is the answer, right? If war is never the answer, then that means that Hitler is the answer. Right? Because who would have stopped Hitler? You would have said to Hitler, I bring you the message of peace. Good luck. Good luck. You're dead before you even get that meeting, I promise you. Right? right? So, so, so let's be serious. There are certain times where that, is, where, where that is the way to gain peace. The way to gain peace. You know, um, you know a, a lot of people don't know this, but that divorce actually is, is a mitzvah in the Torah. And that doesn't mean that... Um, uh, that a person should therefore say, well, I want to be very, I want to serve God. How can I serve God? Oh, there's this wonderful mitzvah called divorcing my wife. <laughs> well, I keep Shabbos, I wear tzitzis, I guess I have divorced my wife, right? If I want to be from, right? So, okay, that's ridiculous, obviously. But 
Why, why does divorce exist? What is the rationale of that as being one of the 613 mitzvot? It's in order to preserve shalom bias. It's in order to preserve peace in the house. So in other words, peace is so great that there's even such a concept of divorce that's there in order to maintain peace. Not in order to, you know, get the other person in a sanctified way. I'm going to get you. This is over, you know, and I get to be religious while I'm doing it. You know, it's not that. It's that peace is so valuable, you, you need something even to protect peace, and sometimes it's divorce in order to preserve peace. So why am I bringing that up? Because the fact that war exists in the Torah, it's to maintain peace. It's so, it's so that if there are people like Hitler or whatever it is, Yamach Shemo, if there are people like that, it's in, it's in order to get rid of him so that we can return to a state of peace. Not because sometimes we like war, you know, depends on our mood. You know, we like peace, but we also like war. You know, it's, a, you know, it's, not, it's not that. It, it's for the sake of peace. Now remember, one of Hashem's holiest names, right, is Shalom, which means peace. This is an incredible thing, because that means that when we're in a state of peace, we're in this state of godliness, right? And, and, and what's so interesting is that we say, Osei Shalom Bimromav, Huyasei Shalom, Aleinu V'yakoi Yisrael Amen, right? And we say that God who makes <clears throat> peace in the heavens, right? So, so we have we have a concept that that uh, you know there's in the heavens there's like there's like fire in the heavens like in the some of the exalted spheres like it says like the angels like they literally like burn up in conflagrations right like they just explode in fire like in the upper reaches of different parts of like heaven. And yet, Shamayim literally means Sha, Sham means there, and Mayim means water. So, so on the one hand, Shamayim means there is water, and on the other hand, we know there's fire up there. Well, can fire and water coexist? Fire and water cannot coexist. The water puts out the fire, or maybe the fire is going to burn up the water. So when we talk about peace in Torah, we're not talking about homogeneity. We're not talking about um, everyone's got to be the same. You know how we're going to make peace? Everyone's going to be the same. And then, then we're going to finally have peace. That's not the Torah ideal. Remember, it says, it says that God is not like human beings. When human beings like mint a coin, right? So, so. You've got like a conveyor belt, like you can go to the U.S. Mint and you can see this. You're stamping out quarters. Every quarter looks exactly the same. It says when God makes people, no two people look the same. (laughs) It's another thing we take for granted. Why don't we all look the same? How is it that we all look different? That's incredible, like the artistry of Hashem. Hashem has never repeated the same face twice. Can you imagine that? Billions and billions and billions of people for thousands and thousands of years and God has never repeated himself? 
So we are not looking, when we, when we, when we look for peace, we're not looking for, for just this robot, robotic similarity. And I know a lot of people... When they start to um, sort of discover the beauty of Torah and they start to like find out more and more about halacha and things like this, you know, it's sort of like, you know, let's say they'll go to someone's house for Shabbos and they'll be like, oh, this is so beautiful and everything like that. And I feel so warm in this family environment and it's touching something in my soul and I, I love it so much. And there's 613, what? <laughs> you know, it's sort of like... All of a sudden, they find out about the mitzvot, and they're like, what are you doing to me? Come on. Like, I just wanted some chicken soup, and they're like, in a place where someone wasn't going to like smack me over the head with a board, you know? And it's like, you know, now you're telling them about this stuff? So, so, so people think that, you know, like, that observance is going to wipe away their personality. Like the goal of observance, the goal of the mitzvot, and there's so many mitzvot, that the goal is to basically take any shred of individuality away from me and to actually kill it, to just, just murder it, to murder it, you know? And, and the example that I, I, I love the most of this is that we have a whole tractate of the Talmud, Mesechta Sukkah, and it's one of the thickest volumes of the whole Talmud. And there's so many halachas about building a sukkah, like huge numbers of them. So you would think if there's so many halachas for building a sukkah and you make one that's actually kosher, for sure they're all going to look the same. And the greatest thing is, have you ever walked from sukkah to sukkah? Every single one looks different. They're all following the same halachas and every single one looks different. Because the idea is that you're being given this prism to express your individuality in the purest, most beautiful way. Right? Not, God forbid, to take it away, but to express it in the framework of the divine. So, so Reb Shlomo says very beautifully that, you know, when we talk about politics, we talk about the left and we talk about the right, you know? And... And, 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 and Reb Shlomo says, you know, and, and I'm sure he's, he's drawing a little bit on Rebbe Nachman here too, that when you bring the left hand and the right hand together, right, you make music. <laughs> you know, so the idea is that we, it's not like we, we want to get rid of the left or that we want to get rid of the right. We're, we, we're not, we're, that's not the goal. The goal is that everyone should be working together in harmony while you're still being different and you're still being yourself. That, that's the idea. That's the idea. Because God, God could have made us all with the same face. He didn't, he, wanted, he didn't want to do that. And then we have to keep ourselves in check. Because remember the, the classic Kutzker Torah. That you're not surprised when you meet someone who doesn't look like you. So why are you surprised when you meet someone that doesn't think like you? Right? Everyone's so shocked. I, I, what a chutzpah. You don't agree with me? Who are you not to agree with me? I'm, 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 I'm obviously right. I mean... We don't even have to discuss that. Let's just start with that with a premise. I'm right. Okay. Now, why don't you agree with me? <laughs> and I, I think I mentioned it the other day. I, I remember I, it's um, humiliated, but I, I'll share it with you just so um, you should benefit from my own uh, 
my own uh, embarrassment. I, I had an argument with my wife. Actually, it wasn't such an argument, but I was being a jerk. She was being fine. Um, in front of uh, one of my most prized teachers. And, um, and I allowed, just allowed myself to just be bombastic and a jerk. And, and I concluded my tirade with, and I couldn't feel more strongly, something like that. I think I said something like that. And then my rabbi said to me very gently, you know, the, the, the strength of your feelings is not an affirmation of the truth. <laughs> In other words, you can feel very, very strongly about something that's just incorrect. <laughs> So the idea that your the strength of your feelings is your is the topping the topping note of your like you know you know run is like it it it, it adds no credibility at all to what you're saying. So we should just understand that about ourselves that you know we can feel you know like I'll give you an example in, in modern day discourse. People. Um, uh, really love tolerance, right? That's really one of the, like, you know, like, come on, let's all be tolerant of each other, right? And they, they imagine that that actually means living in peace and everything like that. And it can, it can. Tolerance is huge, it's huge. But, but here, here, here where I'm going with this. But then if they meet someone who they feel is intolerant, then all of a sudden their own tolerance flies out the window. Right? Because who are you to disagree with me when I'm preaching the most exalted things? Right? So that doesn't mean that then therefore you shut down in the face of what you perceive as injustice. It doesn't mean don't point out injustice. It doesn't mean that. But you don't have to make it an emotional, personal thing where, you know, you're right and therefore better than the other person. You know? And so... That's, uh, you know, I, I, I remember a story between uh, the Chose of Lublin and the Rimenover. The Rimenover was the Chose's right-hand man. And the Chose said to the Rimenover one time, he said, you know something like during a shear, if you see that I'm getting too excited, like just kind of like signal me because maybe that's a sign that my ego is starting to kind of enter into this. Like if, I, if there's like too much emotion, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be emotional, right? But if there's too much emotion, that's not a great sign, as we were just talking about. So if I get to that place, just sort of like signal me, right? By the way, I'll just tell you an aside, like a, another story which I just love, I love, I love, I love. The Mayor Enayim, the, the Chernobler Rebbe, this is one of the classic books of Hasidus, the Mayor Anayim, an, an amazing, amazing, amazing book. Um, listen to this. And he was absolutely one of the greatest Hasidic masters ever, okay? In fact, Reb Shlomo says that he was the head of the Lamed Vav Tzadikim, okay? So the, the Chernobyl Rebbe in Mayor Anayim, which is his, like, I think his most classic work, is composed only of Torahs. You ready for this? that he didn't remember saying. Mm -hmm. Because he felt like if, if, if he remembered saying it, there might be some ego attached to it. 
So can you imagine a collection of books, and it's one of the old-time classic books of Hasidus, of Torah. It's only composed of Torahs he didn't remember saying. <laughs> I mean, like how great is that person? How, how great a tzaddik is the Chernobyl Rebbe? Okay, so, so the Chos of Lublin says to the Rimenover, if I, get, if I ever get too excited, just kind of like signal me. Now, I think it was years later, the subject never comes up again. Something like years later, um, the Chosa gets very excited. And the Rimenover goes to, uh, the Rimenover goes to signal to him as they had agreed like way, way, way long time ago. And the Chosa says, no, you know, b- before you did that, I realized. Okay, but thank you. <laughs> So, so you need you need emotion, you need passion, but you also have to understand that 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 alone is not a certification of your own truth, right? And um, and we need peace, but not the type of peace that like robs a person of their individuality and of their specialness, but the type of peace that allows everyone to offer their own unique specialness and for it to come in harmony, and that we can make music out of it. Can you imagine, like, you know what a musical um, uh, score looks like? Have you ever seen one? What the notes look like on the page? So they go up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. Can you imagine, like, he's like, I just wrote this great, this great musical composition. I've been working on it for decades. Oh my goodness, I can't believe it. Can I see it? Did you write it down? I wrote it down. Here's the score. Can you imagine like there's one note and it just stays on the same level for ages and pages and pages and pages and pages. It's like, what did you do? Like, what is this? What is this? Like, music, music means that up and down. Music means that differentiation. Music means all those different songs coming together in a great symphony. And that's what humanity is. That's what history is. And we'll just conclude the thought We've mentioned it before, but it's just, it's just so uh, right here, right now. Wagner, who, you know, was probably not the greatest friend of the Jewish people, but, but in his day was considered the king of opera, and opera was the genre of music that everyone flocked to, especially civilized people. So Wagner was like, it. So Wagner's operas, which were these epic, mythological, you know, amazing, you know, set pieces, he would put out a, 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 a composition with a melody which would not reach its, like, its completion, its, its, like, its, its harmony, right? Like its resolution. It, there would be a, 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 a musical thread that would not be resolved. You ready for this? For hours. Okay? And then in the climax... He would resolve that thing and people would be weeping in their seats. They would be weeping. Right? And that's history. That is the history of the world. That's what we're experiencing right now. There are all these things and you say, well, there's injustice there and there's war there. All that stuff on some level and there's hatred and and, and there's confusion and I don't get it and why should it be this way? All of that are these melodies that haven't been resolved yet because history hasn't reached its conclusion. 
But then Mashiach comes and we see God. Oh, you see God. So his oneness becomes revealed. Everything becomes so clear. Every question is answered. And all of a sudden, there's a resolution to this harmony that's been building for thousands of years. Can you imagine? That's a few hours. Can you imagine what the joy is going to be when it's resolved after thousands of years? What that level of simcha is going to be? And it's the destiny of the world. And we're, we're rocketing toward it. I know it seems like it's taking forever. It seems like it's taking forever. But at the same time, we're absolutely rocketing toward it every single day. Every single day. Remember, it says that every generation is lower than the previous generation because we're further away from the, the revelation at Mount Sinai. But Reb Shlomo added, yeah, true, but every generation is also closer to the arrival of Mashiach. Right? So you got to balance those two things. You know? So anyway, Shem should bless us. We should embrace our own uniqueness, but at the same time, allow the divine order of the universe to filter and be a prism for that uniqueness in order to express like true harmony and true beauty. And when we do that, it's going to be in a frictionless environment. Because when we express the, the Torah, these are the ideals and the, and the energies that God created the entire universe with. And so there's nothing that stops them. They just flow and they flow and they flow forever, 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 forever. You can say to yourself, how can the redemption be close at hand? Because I, I, I look at the world and it's so thoroughly broken. It's like, come on, let's, let's get real. What are you saying? Mashiach's around the corner. What, what are you talking about? Have you opened your eyes? Have you read a newspaper? Have you... What are you talking about? But understand something. The Sakachova Rebbe says, the Shemishmul says, that all of the schosim, all of the merits of all of the previous generations are accumulating. They didn't just go away because a, a tzaddik dies or a, 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 just a regular person who, ever, we all do so much, right? All of the merits and all of the avodah, all of the heavenly service of all of the generations, and Jews and non-Jews, by the way, all are piling up and they're all collective and you can't see those right now. But there are mountains and there are mountains and there are mountains of good that are right here. So, and Reb Shlomo says, you know, who knows whose prayer it's going to be that brings Mashiach? And I heard it with my own ears and I, I heard him say it more than once. He said it could be a, a, a someone lying in a gutter right, who you would imagine is like the most forsaken person, how do you know that that person's prayer isn't going to bring Mashiach? You don't know. And it absolutely could. It absolutely could. So don't, don't be fooled by your eyes because there's tremendous amounts going on that we can't even see, right, in terms of the Kedusha and the accumulation of, of merits of the generations. And so, so you know, there are people who like, and I, this always makes me uncomfortable and nervous. There are people who come up to me and they say, uh, have you seen this, this world event? This world event is like, it's basically, you know, it's basically, it's this apocalyptic thing and, and it means we're very, very close. Can I tell you something? We're very, very close without the apocalyptic event. You don't need some crazy terrorist act which echoes something from from one of the prophecies to confirm the fact that we're on the edge of the completion of the world. 
It's going to happen anyway, and it can happen any moment, and it can have already have happened so many times throughout our history. You don't need those headlines in order to give you faith in that. That is the DNA of the world. That is creation itself. So, so it can happen any time. It can happen any time. Shem should bless us. It should happen right now. Should have already happened. We should go outside and just, you know, say, "Hey, you know what was going on while we were in here?" All right.